Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, legendary Canadian star Andy Kim. We'll be talking about music, travels, the business of music, songwriting, and we'll get some other insights as well about recording and live shows, and, and life too, and the many adventures of a genuine Canadian treasure. So uh, join me as we look back on the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Andy Kim is best known for his iconic and timeless hits like Baby I Love You and Sugar Sugar and Rock Me Gently, and he has a very impressive list of accomplishments from over 40, uh, 50 plus years in the spotlight. So thanks for joining me today, Andy. How are you? I'm doing great. I really, really am. It's it's great to talk to you. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. And uh, I read through your story when I was doing the research for this, and uh, I must say, uh, pretty impressive stuff, just, just on a human level, you know? I mean, of course, everyone's trying to make their way in the world and do the best that they can, I, I would assume, but... Uh, your story is, is, is really intriguing to me, and so I wanted to ask you about a few different aspects of it. And the first thing that struck me is, you know, you were so young when you got started, so I was going to ask you about your musical background, but really it was just an interest, more of an interest in music, it seems to me, and you tried the different instruments and had some affinity to that? I think I, I came at it from an unorthodox way. Uh, growing up in Montreal, um, we obviously had you know, French radio and English radio. And I think when um, I got a transistor radio, um, that opened my world to WABC in New York. Yeah. And it was the radio station, uh, that and KBW, uh, WKBW in Buffalo, um, where for some reason or other, the frequency was like really, really strong and and I heard American music, and uh, it wasn't so much the music, but it's how they spoke about the artists. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be in town, and they're going to be doing this and doing that. And and I, a kid that grew up in a tenement, so I had a dream to do this. Um, but I didn't know how to do it. I just, you know, knew eventually that I had to go to New York City and... Um, so I went on a dream. I went on 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 this 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 musical movie reel I had in my in my head, and uh, that's how I got there. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I know you said in your when you were accepting the award, I think it was for the Music and Broadcast Hall of Fame. You said that you had to have the right combination of ignorance and confidence. I think is what it, is the way you put it, which was was quite <laughs> <laughs> quite nice way to end it. But uh, you know, I was thinking it reflected on me because I was thinking, you know, young people do things because they don't know what they can't do. And it seems to me that you were one of those people that you didn't know what you couldn't do. You just thought, okay, I'll go down there and see what happens. Yeah, I think I think um, you know you um, you don't live in fear. You live in adventure, and I think that's you know I, I turn around and look at all the things and the places I've been, and and hell, I could not have planned that. I yeah. just said okay to the universe. There you go. And what year did you go to New York? I was trying to do the timeline there. Um, I had gone to New York in uh, the latter part of the sixties. Okay, um, but. Um, just to really find out uh, how I could meet one person. And that person was a man named, by the name of Jeff Barry, yeah. who was already into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, and I mean, wrote some songs with Ellie Greenwich and Phil Spector, like Be My Baby and The Do Run Run and Hanky Panky and and the uh, Chapel of Love, and yep. I mean, it can go on and on and oh, on yeah. and on. And the great thing is that my two older brothers really kind of owned the record player, and they owned the forty fives, and they also had magazines. And and um, I used to steal myself into their room when they weren't around just to read what all this was about. You know, it's almost a, a fantasy world. But it's it was the it was really kind of the world that that became a reality for me, and uh, and he gave me an opportunity to uh, to hear uh, my song, and I said I said probably the, the most one of the most important lines and and sentences in my life. Um, after five minutes, he said, "I gotta go. 
I'm getting late for the studio. And um, I went to parochial school. I had a shirt and tie on while he had jeans and, and cowboy boots on and stuff. And I said, can I come with you? I've never been in a studio before. Which, as I look back on it now, it's like, that's not a good thing to say. <laughs> you <laughs> I know? Suppose, yeah. It's like, you should be polished by now. But, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've never tried to do anything other than what I felt in my heart. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, have you had lunch? And I said, yes, but I hadn't. Hmm. And he said, well, I usually get a sandwich, and, um, but I only eat half of it. So here I am walking the New York streets with him, having part of the sandwich oh. and um, not knowing what to say because I had nothing to say. Yeah. But I, 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 I was in the studio for the first time in my life. So, yeah. Um, and you would have been how old at that time? That I could do this. I'm sorry? You would have been how old at that time? You were barely 20, I guess, at that time, right? Um, yeah, I was, I was younger than that at, at that first meeting, you know, okay. and for me, I, um, I always found it, um, interesting that if you are forthcoming and not trying to be the musicians, oh, I know this and I know that I, cause I don't, I don't even know how I got here, man. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. And then I was going to ask you, so, I mean, for every, every, you're a, a, an exception because there's, for every person who's successful, like you were, there's countless people who would have went down, there were stars in their eyes looking for a pot of gold and, and never found it. And for some reason, the stars aligned for you and you found it. So that speaks well of you. And, uh, I was curious to, I was going to ask you because I read Paul Anka's book, you know, and he did something very similar. He was in Ottawa. And he said, I, I realized right away, if I'm going to make it, I got to go to New York. So he went down there and he was another success story. And I wondered if you had paralleled his story in any way, or if you're familiar with it, if you ever worked with him. Um, I've met, well, I'll start uh, backwards. Uh, I've never worked with him, uh, met him. I, I think that, that, you know, his story, especially at that time is, is, um, is a, it's a phenomenal Canadian story yeah. where you just, you just say, I'm going to do this. And, and, you know, obviously his career was, um, it, it kind of like what was, was written to be a movie. And so meeting him, he did not disappoint as a, as a, as a musician, as an artist. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you, you hear that someone already climbed the Himalayas. And yeah. so I'll try it. Yeah, no, I just was curious because I I saw a parallel there. Like, you know, lots of kids. I mean, how many kids go from here to Nashville or here to L.A.? I'm going to L.A. You hear that? I, I couldn't count how many times I've heard that. And most of them end up, you know, just coming back and saying, well, there's no pot of gold there for me. But in your case and in the case of Paul Anka, you, you got into the right doors and you were able to do the right uh, the right moves, I guess it was, and and get where you needed to get. And that that's just a rarity is, I guess, my overriding point. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I don't think that there there is uh, a blueprint. Um, you know, if if you look back at at the the fifties and sixties and earlier than that, there were there were Canadians that were having hits, but but n nothing nothing um, that you know stood out on a constant basis like Paul's career. Yeah, and and so you you see it. And look, nothing is a guarantee. I think the important thing is what do you believe? What do you believe in your heart and soul? And, um, and if you believe it, someone will show up and, and help you construct your dream. Yeah. But I could never have done it on my own. There were so many people that, that helped me along the way. And yeah. so now Canada has, Canada's not an outpost. It's it's really kind of it has its own generation of artists that don't have to leave home. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a good word, and that's uh, the, the music business developed, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, and now now people are able to be successful out of Canada, especially in the 80s and beyond that. Um, I was going to ask you also about the New York scene, because uh, Paul Anka in his book talks quite a bit about the, the negative influences and the mob and, and the, the dirty part of the business and, and how he had to sort of cope with that and got caught up in that a little bit. Um, were you able to avoid most of that? Did you? I mean, yeah, you know what? I, I, th- I think I was born with a certain kind of radar yeah. that, that um, I always stayed within my lane. I, I totally, totally believe that um, I could live my life and my world in an environment that was filled with the dark side. Yeah. And um, um, I really feel that... Um, it's 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 really kind of been a blessed journey, you know. There were there were times along the way that, you know, you could have gotten in big trouble. You could have signed with the wrong people. But hey, man, I told you I I I've told a lot of people that I I have put two words, adjectives in front of my name as I look back: lucky and blessed, Andy yeah. Kim. Yeah. Well, okay, that's a good word. And, and of course, if you have that positive energy and you gravitate towards the positive things, you, you just tend to repel the negative things too. And I've tried to be that way myself and just gravitate towards the, the things that are going to uh, set you up well and feed your soul and, and do the things that you want to do so you can live your life. So I appreciate it. That's a good word. And I think in, in the way that you speak and the way that you recount your stories and stuff, you're consistent in, in that and probably have been most of your life or all your life. So... Well, there's no other way, you know. I mean, I'm, I, I think to be clear and to be precise is, uh, I think, something that was a part of me all along. Mm. So, uh, you know, you never try to cheat anybody. You never try to get ahead of the line. You, I never was envious, still never envious of anyone who's had huge success. I, I know artists that, you know, talk about, um, the fact that that could have been their turn or the record company didn't do this. And, yeah. you know, I never think in those terms, you do what you do. And in God's graces, it works. And the times that you thought you had the best song in the world, n- no one ever heard it. <laughs> and it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Um, yeah. no, I like, so, I like um, that. So then you got, you got, in with Jeff Barry, and then you did How Did We Ever Get This Way? And you had some success with that. He signed you to his Steed label, and then you got some uh, ranking, I think, at number 21 on that, right? So you got that put you on the map, that song? Yeah, it, it was like really strange, you know. Um, there were three music magazines at the time Billboard, Cashbox, and a magazine called Record World. So if if I was number 21 on one magazine, but 19 on another one and 13 on the other, you know, you walk around saying, well, I got number 13. (laughs) (laughs) But, but eventually, eventually, I mean, the only way that, that you can win that roll of the dice is to be number one on all of them, you know, which I was lucky enough to be there twice. But, um, yeah, it's, I was always thankful. I'm thankful that I that I wanted to meet someone that I met that person. I was thankful that that he didn't think that a two chord song was silly. Yeah. Um and and thankful that I, I got to number, you know, twenty one or whatever the other numbers are. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. It was just the beginning yeah. of building a platform for your life. Yeah, no, that's cool. And then you, and I listened to the song Rainbow Ride. So the, you had the very 60s sound, right? The, the guitar picking and the, it was almost a British sound. And that song did reasonably well for you as well, right? Yeah, the strangest thing is that um, um, when I started touring again, uh, first of all, you know, you have, you have an incredible run. I did. And... Um, but the, in the Brill Building, 
there there was this great adage that said, you are only as good as your last two minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, there you go. So it's nothing is promised. Yeah. Nothing is guaranteed. It's just this moment. And it's really kind of how I've always seen my life. Yeah. I've lived every day to its fullest, or if it's not to its fullest, I've lived that day the way I felt like living that day. And um, knowing that I can't go back, I can't reach out and grab tomorrow and bring it to me. You just have to live those moments. Um, And and the interesting thing um, was I would go to places that I started when I started performing again, um, people would yell out, do rainbow ride. <laughs> and we, we hadn't rehearsed it. Wow. There was no, well, maybe the next time I'm in town. And, but I heard it enough that I started doing an acapella version of rainbow ride and the audience would join me. And I didn't realize that that particular song did something that I still don't understand. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, it it didn't have the the run that some of my other songs did, yeah. but there was something about it. So, um, so yeah, it's been cool. Well, I think that's a great, that's a great thing. You know, it's funny in our, in our, through the decades show, we often, I often say that, you know, songs are hooks to hang memories on, right? And, and you know what, that Not song, yep. yeah, and that song is a hook that some people have hanged some memories on and, and they want to hear it. So that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, I did the Calgary Stampede. I was there for 10 days, you know, so we uh, performed every night. And um, uh, you'd meet the audience, brand new audience every night, and you meet people. And and, um, so many people came up to me and said, not this exactly, but the theme was this. My dad was driving, and I was next to him, and he loved that song. He would crank it up. my my this my mom or or my aunt or uncle it was always in the car for some reason or other the the story that I'm hearing yeah and and it's always stayed with them those memories of people that you love that love something you know absolutely no that's like right. your mother's cooking. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's good. And and so I was going to ask you too, like in New York, I mean, it, it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows too, right? You had some lean years there. I mean, you got some real success, I guess, in 69 when you got Baby I Love You came out. That was your first really major, so I guess, worldwide hit. But you had some lean years in there too, right? Yeah, but you know what? I, I was excited about the fact that I could go to the Brill Building every day yeah. and... Uh, be in, in Jeff Barry's office, whether he was there or not, and be around music and be around creative people and going to their their demo sessions and, and all of that. So to me, um, that was my world. Yeah. I just loved, and I still love being in the studio. I still love that environment yeah. of trying to make the best record you can um, around the song that you that you like. Nice. No, that's that's great. I mean, that's that's a, a good word as well because it's the passion, right? You do it because you love doing it, not because you're coerced into it or because you feel like you have to. And then uh, I remember I'm I'm not quite as old as you are, but I'm catching up to you, so I'm I'm not far behind. And and I remember when Baby I Love You came out, we used to go to the roller rink all the time, and that was a huge song at the roller rink. So we we roller rinked around <laughs> the rink to that song many times, holding hands with our girlfriends and stuff too. So that's my hook to hang a memory on there for sure with, with Baby I Love You because every time I hear that I think of the roller rink and the fact that they played it all the time. Well, I just um, um, I have a dear friend who lives in uh, in Bogota and, and he just sent me a note saying that you know, Baby I Love You is is a commercial for ibuprofen. Oh. <laughs> and, and they're playing it a lot. Yeah. And I have no idea how the two correlate, <laughs> but it's, it's music, you know, and yeah. people will hear it a certain way and, 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 and enjoy it a certain way. Yeah. Well, I was curious about that song too, because that, that was a, a, a Motown hit obviously. Right. And then, so did, was it Jeff Berry's idea to redo that and get you to do it? No, but basically what happened was, um, I think, I think it was, well, I'm, 
it was the follow-up to Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Yeah. So I had never heard the song. And so, uh, you know, I, I was thankful that that I was able to, you know, use Jeff's office. And when we wrote together, we were together. And when I wrote stuff on my own, I'd be there or or um, find a way to to always be in that room. It was very inspiring for me. There's yeah. Just a piano and um, and a guitar, you know. So um, so one day I got there early, and um, I was playing this thing, which I did not know what it was. And so um, so he walks in, opens the door, and I stop playing. He said, no, no, no. I said, I was listening to you from outside the room. So what are you playing? I said, well, I'm, I'm playing your song. He said, what song is that? And I show him the lead sheet. He says, that's not how the song goes. <laughs> but I love what you're doing. So we'll make it the way you imagine it. And so we went into the studio and, you know, I put down five guitars, five different guitars, and they put the sounds together. And so maybe that's how uh, Baby I Love You uh, yeah. was born. Oh, well, thanks for sharing that, because I, w- I was always curious, you know, you sort of pick a song out of the hat, and I guess you were, you kind of had a different flavor, and, and I actually know your version better than, of course, the other version, because that's the one at the roller rink, so. <laughs> well, it, but, but an interesting thing, too, is that um, May 24th, 1969, Baby I Love You hit the Billboard charts for the first time. Yeah. May 24th. 1969, same day, um, Sugar Sugar was released, hmm. but nobody, but, but it didn't hit the charts till the middle of July because nobody wanted to play it. Interesting. So, so you get, you get this avalanche of songs that, that you, you helped create and, and, and be a part of and, and, um, and then they become part of your life, you know? Yeah. Well, and then talking about Sugar Sugar, so you wrote that for the Archies, and then I didn't fully make the connection when I was younger. I mean, I got it later, because everybody said, well, that's Andy Kim singing that, you know? And I was like, okay, well, yeah, but it was the Archies. And then, so I got the connection later, but then as I looked into your story, you were writing songs for that, and so you submitted that song to the Archies, right? Well, yeah, it was to Don Kirshner, who, uh, you know, had the Midnight Special, and and he was the musical supervisor for um, um, the Monkees. Okay. And they fired him hmm. because he gave them all these great songs. And I think, uh, I think, um, you know, Mickey and Davy and Peter and, and Mike um, really kind of wanted to start writing their own songs. And, and all the hits they had were written by other songwriters, you know, and yeah. so um, when he became musical supervisor for the Archies and basically it, it was going to be a, a half hour Saturday morning cartoon show, um, I think that he reached out to everybody that ever wrote a song. Okay. <laughs> and, and do you have a song for the Archie? You know, and so that's how that started. And you submit a song that you, you think you like and then someone says, oh, I like this one. Yeah. It's never anything other than the mystery mm-hmm. of why people like stuff. I, I, have, I, I can't tell you. I, I can only tell you whether I liked it or not. Yeah. And I, I loved, in my head, I would always be, I'd always be humming Sugar Sugar. Yeah. And so, uh, so it's kind of a somewhat, truly really strange world to live in. But it's fascinating. <laughs> well, there's there's a certain magic, right? There's like, I mean, that the hook in Sugar Sugar is so infectious that everybody's like our singer Georgia. Her mom, that's her favorite song. Every time she comes out, we we play a bunch of, a bunch of your songs, and every time she comes out, we have to play Sugar Sugar for her because that's the song. It's in her soul, man. She wants to hear it. So we, I love singing it. I love playing it, and she loves it too. So it's that infectious kind of hook that gets in you. You just can never get it out. So it's, that's every songwriter's dream, I think, right there. Yeah, yeah, but you know, first of all, you have to understand that that it took like what a couple of months before 
anybody wanted to play it. So you ask yourself, well, why? Why didn't they hear it? And maybe it was because they didn't want to play the Archies because it was not a group. You know, you you look at it in context. It's 1969, the year of Woodstock. You know, there's political upheaval in the streets of Washington and throughout the U.S. because of the Vietnam War. And we're going to the moon, and then you get this song. Yeah. Um, And, you know, underground music that became FM music. Uh, It's just, so I don't know. Interesting. I stopped trying to figure it out. For sure. And you, and you did some other songs, too. You Jingle Jangle and you did Who's Your Baby. Did You, you submitted those to uh, the Archies as well, right? Yeah. I mean, there was never, um, there was never uh, anything other than, do you like this? Oh, you like that one? Okay, well, yeah. we'll give you that. You know, oh, that okay. kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like basically squeezing the tomato, whether you think it's ripe or not, that you want to buy at that moment. Yeah. It's it's different. It maybe it's a bad analogy, but it's kind of like someone's taste. Mm-hmm. No, and and really, uh, the musical supervisor. Uh, hey, when you think of all the monkey hits, yeah, he's the guy that brought them there. Yeah. Um, and then when the monkeys broke up, I ended up uh, writing songs for them for their last album. Okay. Oh, so cool. that was yeah. cool. oh neat. So, no, I appreciate you sharing that. So, listen, I'm going to take one quick break here, and then and we'll come right back. Liner Notes has a VIP community, and we'd love to have you as a member. Listen to the weekly episodes before the rest of the world, enjoy bonus podcasts, and be the first to know about upcoming guests. Oh, yeah, the episodes also have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. Check out the details and become a member at linernotes.ca. That's linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're talking to Andy Kim about uh, what we just talked about, the late 60s and uh, connecting with Jeff Barry. And and then you were there for, I guess, a few years. And then what happened with Jeff Barry? Like, what happened when you left there? Because you were you were doing songs, you were in New York, and then uh, that was by the early 70s. I think you, you left there, right? Didn't you go to L.A.? Yeah, you know what? Um, I love New York City. I've always loved New York City. I think uh, um, sometimes I think we got it as the... Um, the city of my birth, but although Montreal is the city of my birth where my mom and dad, God rest their souls, are buried, and yep. I'll, I'll be there one day as well, and stuff like that, but um, there was, and still is a magic about New York, every time I go there, I feel, I feel something special. Yeah. Um, what I did not know was that, and, and did not did not really grasp right away was that into the middle sixties and well, from, from the middle sixties on, there was an exodus. People were going to LA, you okay. know? And, um, so my contract was up with Steed records and, um, I think they were about to shut down and, uh, I just felt for myself, um, I need to, to refocus. Okay. So I, I went to LA and, and was able to find, um, a new environment. If you're a songwriter, you can write almost anywhere. There are places where you have a comfort zone that you want to stay with, but I've written songs in a car. I've been walking or in the middle of a, of a conversation where something happens and I say, I got to go, and I hang up and, and just write down an idea. In the middle of a dream, you get something. So yeah. you never know when it's going to show up. So, so New, York, New York was was and will always be magical. I came to L.A. I, um, I had a car, but I didn't know how to drive because hmm. it was never my ambition to drive. That's why I love New York so much, subways, cars, and limos. And (laughs) and so you get spoiled with limos. Why should I drive and find a parking place? So I would loan my car to anybody that needed a car and things like that. But I started writing different songs. It just, it's just, it's, it's the growth of life, you know? And, um, 
at the beginning didn't have the kind of attention or success that my earlier life had, but that's just, that's just the way it is, you know? Well, that's what struck me about it because I mean, I thought, okay, here's a young guy goes to New York, he gets in the right doors. He, he's got enormous success. And then all of a sudden you end up just a few years later, not that long. And then you're in LA and you're, you're not starting over, but you're kind of reinventing yourself and, you know, you got no record deal. You're kind of more untethered at that point, right? Trying to figure out where you're at. And I just thought, gee, that, that seems kind of like a disconnect. Like you think you just take your success and ratchet it up from there and, and carry on, right? But you kind of reinvented yourself. Well, it's, it's you know, what basically happened to me anyway is that um, my two minutes and 30 seconds were kind of up. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, maybe you can, you can find another place to, uh, to do what it is that you do. And, and, um, I, I fell into a, a great environment in Los Angeles. Um, I love the solitude of songwriting mm-hmm. and, um, and without feeling that I had to talk my songs, I just kept writing. Mm-hmm. And hoping that someone would uh, be interested in something I was writing and doing, and I never lost faith in the fact that I was going to live a happy life. Well, good for you because I, I looked at that and I thought, well, you don't have a record deal now. You're kind of trying to do it on your own, and you did much of it on your own. I think you even started your own record label at some point, right? You had you had no record label, well, and yes, um, look, I. When you when when you had time to to focus and look back, which is something that I I never enjoy doing, yeah. but um, it's it's it falls upon you um, in a mysterious way that you can look back and smile at the the successes and smile at the fact that you tried something and it didn't work. Um, but you were trying, that's the important thing. And, um, so I never lost faith. And for me, I always felt that I would land on my feet somehow. Um, which worked out well for you and and you went to LA, but you, you put that band together, I guess that was a studio band, right? That you put together when you did rock me gently and in, that would have been 74 then. Yep. I wrote the song at six o'clock in the morning. And um, didn't really know anybody hmm. to call. So I called the Musicians Union. Someone said, well, call the Musicians Union. <laughs> so oh. I called and I got five people to show up that turned out to be iconic musicians. Wow. Uh, I still remember recording it on a Friday night at 8 o'clock and it was raining. And I had gone to McDonald's and had a hamburger and fries. I love their fries. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and walked into the studio in the midst of strangers. Yeah. And wow. an hour and a half later, I had the bed track to Rocking Gently. Yeah, that's amazing. And I was, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, because the, the parts are so iconic, like the bass part, the way it starts, the clav part is, you know, world-renowned. I mean, you're getting these these sort of really signature, like, wow moment kind of parts, right? Yeah, because you know what? I ended up taking all the stuff that I learned. Um, not only did I write it, but I was also the producer. Okay. And so, um, and I had a, I had a record in mind, you know, it's like, there's a certain thing, whether it's the, the intro, the baseline or the clavinet, I didn't know I didn't know what was going to happen in those bars, so I left it blank. Yeah. There was nothing huh. except except uh, the drummer counting off just those bars. Yeah. And um, um, it took me about a couple of three weeks to find to finally realize. You know, I I, I tried everything in my head: the guitar solo. No, I don't want a guitar solo. Horn solo. No, I don't want that. Hmm. Um, string solo. No, I don't want that. I, and eventually, I, I, I remember um, driving home from a party in Malibu, and maybe it was the, Ma- <laughs> the Malibu party that 
you know, had me thinking outside the box that I thought of the club and head part, you know? Hmm. And so, uh, it was great. And then, uh, nobody wanted to put it out. I, I took it everywhere and nobody wanted to. Absolutely. Andy Kim had had his last two minutes and 30 seconds. Wow. So we'll see ya. But I was never afraid of the word no, ever since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I was never afraid of the word no. So I, I remember calling my mom and telling her I'm coming home, and she started to cry because she never wanted me to leave. Oh, well. But, uh, but I said, I'm coming home. I'm starting my a record company. I'm going to call it Ice. This is 74 before, you know, hip-hop, and everybody yeah. decided to use the term. And, you know, the beer companies with the... So I was going to start which I did start my own record company. I would be my own producer, my own publisher, my own promoter. I was a soldier on a mission. Yeah. And it, it um, started to get some interest in Canada. But, but, you know, at that time, Canada was not going to save this. I had to have a U.S. voice in there, you know, and... Yeah, um, and so, look, I was lucky enough that I was able to partner with a U.S. label eventually and, and sell over six million records around the world. I was going to give it away for free at one point. <laughs> wow. I just wanted to be part of the playground. Yeah. Well, no, but, it's a great, great hit song and well-deserved, of course. Uh, just a quick question I wanted to ask you about the vocal tone, because your earlier stuff is a little cleaner. And, and on that record, it seems a, just a slight bit of rasp in your voice. Did you do that on purpose, or was that just a, a natural evolution of your voice? It was me getting older, and 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 my um, um, those earlier songs were kind of sped up a little bit. Okay. Um, just look, um, I, I think I think there there are there were a couple of things going on. I mean, one of them is is the production value of those, of those early songs. Yeah. You, you have some kind of success and, and, and the record company, um, and, and, and the people around the record company want to continue that flavor. But when I started producing myself, I, I didn't use the, the speed up vocals and okay. I just stayed, within my own range at that yeah. point. Yeah, no, I love it. I, I think it's great, but I just was curious about it because I noticed the difference and I just was going to oh, ask a you. Big difference. A big difference, you know? Yeah. And the vocals really up front more and it's just making a different kind of record. Um, the things you talk about in the song are kind of a little different. Yeah. And uh, it was me getting older. Yeah. And then the other question I had about the production was you didn't use a metronome on some of those songs, right? No click track? No, no, never. I've never used a click track or auto-tune, period. Okay. I, I, well, there was no auto-tune back then anyway. No, but I was <laughs> you curious. You had to sing those songs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the singer had to sing back then. But I was curious about the metronome because a lot of songs you hear from back then, you know, that speeds up a little bit in the chorus like you would naturally do live, right? And then you pull it back a little bit in the verses and stuff. And I thought, yeah, it gives more of a cool groove rather than that brick sort of uh, click that, that just keeps you strictly on the click. So I noticed that and I was going to ask you about that. As my own producer, you know, I really, I didn't really want to be a producer of my own music. Mm. I don't mind producing someone else, yeah. and but it's kind of difficult because then you have to make all those decisions yeah. that are made by 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 the artist and the producer. When the artist and producer are the same person, yeah. for me anyway, it was kind of difficult. Yeah. But I, I I never wanted to. Uh, to do anything other than have real drums, real guitar players. Um, if you overdub, there's you're not cheating here and there. Um, so yeah. I, I saw the um, the uh, 24 track listing uh, about a couple of years ago. I had gone to uh, digitize it, um, rock me gently, yeah. and I noticed that. The vocal had just one track. Everything was filled with backgrounds and and 
you know, you kind of create certain things that your imagination runs wild with you when you're in the studio. Yeah. And I realized that track 23 had my vocal on it. Oh. And there was no, no other vocal that you could comp and put together. It was just, you either sang it or you did it over again. Wow, there you go. So, yeah, one track you get for the vocals, and uh, take your best shot, and it's, that's it. Well, you have to do it multiple times sometimes. Of course, you know, yeah, you, you get punch you in. Right? Like, yeah, you, you may like something, and then you say, but, but there has to be a continuity to it. Yeah. And so, you know, it was kind of difficult for me to make decisions about, well, I kind of like this, but I, I don't know about that. So <laughs> I would always say, okay, well, let me do the whole thing again. Let me... Because that to me was the power of 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 rock me gently. It was it was one vocal. Yeah, you know? nice. Well, that's good. The other thing I noticed about your production back then is that you don't use really prominent drums. Like in some of your songs, you don't even have a full drum kit. You just have rhythm or percussion. And then other songs that they have the full drum kit, but they're not real boom boom kind of drums. You you you're not into that. It's, it seems like. Well, I, I think that, that the, um, in the 70s for me, you know, it was just the, the center of a mix for me should always be the vocal. Mm-hmm. But the center of the instrumentation has that snare drum. Yeah. And the louder the snare drum, at least for me as a producer, was kind of, I'm competing with a snare drum. Yeah. So this needed the feeling to be there and not hitting over the head. Plus, you know, I'm a single, I'm a pop artist. I'm, yeah. I'm not an artist that's, um, that's ACDC, you know, where it's just absolutely incredible music. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But the drums are boom, crack, boom, boom, crack, boom, crack. And you, you get it right in your face, right? With your stuff, the, the percussion's there and it really adds, but it, it, it complements rather than being in your face. Yeah. It, it, you know what? If, if, if I'd have known how to do it another way, I'd have probably experimented, but I didn't know how to do it no. <laughs> any other way. Then, then uh, I'll do it this way. Yeah, no, that's cool. Well, listen, if it's okay, I want to take one more break, and we'll come back and do our last segment. Is that okay? Yep. All right, appreciate it. Okay, we're talking to Andy Kim. We'll be right back. You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the '60s to '80s every Tuesday and Thursday on Dusty Discs Radio, including one-hit wonders, regional favorites songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favorite. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're talking to Andy Kim and uh, really interesting conversation. I really appreciate all the stuff you're sharing with me. And and we want to get some more of the insights into the production values and the kind of things you were thinking about when you were doing the songs. And I like that part of it because the other stuff is, you know, you can get it online and stuff and the discographies and and whatnot. Um, So let me ask you a little bit, like your your achievement was remarkable just from the very competition that you had at the time. I mean, you, you said you didn't really look at others. You stayed in your own lane. And I do appreciate that. But you're talking B.J. Thomas and Neil Diamond and Tom Jones and Engelbert and Barry Manilow and El- Elvis and Elton John, Kenny Rogers, Neil Sedaka, Paul Anka. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You were you were right in there with all those guys, and they were cranking out tunes as well, right? So what is, what's your thought on that? Well, you know what? I learned early on. I think I may have been at birth. And there's, a, there's a wonderful Buddhist saying that says, born around, do not die square. <laughs> you, you are who you are. Yeah. And so I never wanted to be the competition. Yeah. I may have wanted to beat the competition if I could, but I've never wanted to, to listen and say, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. I really kind of identified with the best that I could be. Yeah. And um, it, was, it was an incredible time. It was an incredible time. I mean, you know, I, I can now sit with Gordon Lightfoot and, and talk to him about his world and his time, yeah. which was before my time, but, but beyond exciting. Yeah. I can sit and talk to Leonard Cohen and all the, the great artists that happened at the time that, that, that are Canadian and were Canadian. And it's not a competition for me. I, I've never 
looked at someone and said, you know, we're doing the same thing, and I wish I could do this. And you are who you are. Find mm-hmm. out, find out yeah. who you are, and, and work on the best of you. And don't waste your time trying to be somebody else because it ain't going to work. Yeah. And because your biggest barometer is the audience. Mm-hmm. They're going to hear the truth all the time. They may not know why it's the truth, but they will hear the truth all the time. Yeah, no, that's interesting because uh, yeah, I was looking at that. T- that was such a rich time for music. And for you to be right in the fray there, right in the middle of it, is, uh, speaks well of you. It's a remarkable achievement. So uh, I did appreciate that aspect of your career. And, and then you never had an actual band, right? You just hired studio guys. And, you know, the famous Wrecking Crew, of course, is the monkeys in that movie. If you've watched the movie, I'm sure you have, where the monkeys show up and, and they want to record their songs. And the guy said, well, it's all done. You know, we've already... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, look, if, if you are a ba- an, an actual band where, you know, the, you're the drummer and, and uh, the guitar player and the keyboard player are part of the writing process and, and part of the, the, the creating process. I've never been a band. I, 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 I never thought about having a, a band tell me what my vision was. Yeah. So right or wrong, I think history will always look at, you know, an artist that has achieved something or they could have done things. I'm not interested in any of that because, you know, kind of like history be damned. Who are you? What are you doing today? What are you doing in the studio? What song did you write? And how could you make the best record of that song? Yeah. And, um, and so you, you have the ability to, to hire different drummers for different songs because yeah. not every song is going to have to be two and four, you know? Yeah. So, you know, do I have any regrets? None whatsoever. Yeah. I guess I was just curious if you missed, like I watched some videos of you and you're doing the lip sync and you're doing the TV shows and you're by yourself. And I just wondered if you missed the camaraderie of a band, you know, Elvis loved his band, right? Like Elvis always loved to play with the band, you know, that was his thing. And then we had seventies band was fantastic and stuff. And I wondered that about you, like you, you're a pop artist, but you're, you're sort of by yourself and you're, you know, doing a song and you're lip syncing to the track and it's cool and everything. I just wondered if you missed the camaraderie of a band. I've thought about it several times, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, the, those times when, um, when you're doing lip sync, um, we're, we're like American Bandstand or, the, you know, when the Beach Boys were on, they, everybody was doing lip sync when they did American Bandstand. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and, and it looked like the drummer was playing and it looked like the guitar player was playing, but it was the record that was playing. Yeah. Um, the times where um, uh, I think about the camaraderie of, of a band beyond the show, I mean, I have a a seven piece band that, that I travel with and that we uh, do our shows with. But I think for me, every now and then um, I often wonder what it would be like to have been in a band. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that a lot of the bands that I know that, that I like broke up. Yeah. (laughs) Hated each other, you know, I know a couple of, Canadian bands where they hated each other. Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, well, I, I escaped the hate. <laughs> yeah, you did. Yes, absolutely. And then you went on to do a bunch of other things. I, I know the, uh, the song you did, Amour, uh, forgive my French, I don't speak French, but... Um, and then, okay. Yeah, and then you, you went on and did that. That was the Baron Longfellow album, but that great song, great production, and uh, it's got kind of a Barry Manilow, Engelbert sort of flavor, really builds nice and stuff, so you had some su- success with that as well, right? When you, Yeah, you know what? Um, uh, you know, m- my career has had a an explosive beginning. It kind of had an explosive moments, yeah. but those moments didn't carry as as many years as my initial moments right. were. Okay. And yeah. and so and that's just the way that's just the way it 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 wrote for my life. Yeah. But um I'll put it to you this way, for for the longest time I would write and make demos 
And I'm talking a good maybe 15 years, if not more than that. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, an incredible attorney who was really well connected in the industry in, in Los Angeles, and and he would send my demos. He was excited about my music, and cool. record companies were excited about my music, and yeah. but there was no but there was no name on the discs or the cassettes that were sent around. And, oh, interesting. And and so as soon as they heard it was Andy Kim, they were not interested. Oh, interesting. And because I have had my two minutes and 30 seconds, they were looking for someone new. They were hearing new thoughts and music, new arrangements, but yeah. they just, um, it just didn't materialize. And then one day, having worked with uh, uh, Bare Naked Ladies, Ed and I wrote a song together and he produced me and yeah. we had a top 10 record in Canada. And people came up to me and they said, we're so happy that you... You came out of retirement. <laughs> and I said, I never retired. I became irrelevant, yeah. but I never retired. Yeah. And it's the truth. Yeah. I was irrelevant. It was like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. He had those hits and nothing. And my life has been really kind of blessed with, you know, whether it's the Bare Naked Ladies or working with Ron Sexsmith and, and having uh, met Kevin Drew, yeah, Brendan King, the social scene, who I end up doing the Letterman show yeah. with a new song from a new album. Yeah. Um, it's been a hell of a ride. It's not been someone else's ride. It's yeah. been my ride. You know? well, I must say, and I, I, your Canadian Music Hall of Fame induction, like the speech you gave was very touching and articulate. I, I thought you were very clear-headed and, and grateful and, and humble. It was really, really good. And then... Um, also, I see you're doing your Christmas specials again, too, right? You've, you've got this one on for 2021, I, I saw on your uh, website. Yes, it's um, going to be at Massey Hall this year. Yeah, very nice. December 8th, 2021, um, Massey Hall? Yeah, uh, December the 8th, Wednesday, December the 8th. Nice. And, and I'm going to be back in Montreal um, on um, December 18th, which is a Saturday. Okay. And... Um, you know what the interesting thing for me is is I, I I'd like every artist to know because there's there's a lot of young artists that come to me and ask me questions and ask for advice and stuff and and I I think for me the important thing is find out who you are, yeah. not who someone else is. Find out how you can best express yourself. Not what's online, not how many friends you have on whatever social media. Yeah. All of that does not matter to your music. Yeah. That's the marketing tool, but some people put marketing in front of their music and it doesn't work, you know? Yeah, well, that's, I think a lot of people sell the sizzle rather than the steak, if you put it that way, yeah. right? And life is yeah, the steak, absolutely. right? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I've, I've watched your lots of your videos now when I was doing research for this, and, and you seem pretty grounded, like your family, your parents, your faith. Like you're very open about all that stuff, especially now. But in your younger years, did you did you ever get caught up in the rock star lifestyle or the self importance or the temptations of that lifestyle? It with capital letters, no. Yeah. And it just was. It was not my nature. You know, a part of me was, um, you know, afraid of being arrested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thrown and thrown out of the country. Yeah. Um, another part of me was it's just not my nature. Yeah. It's just it's um, I really stayed within my zone within what I believe um, my mom and dad and brothers kind of lived yeah. and lived and um, and I'm safer that way. Well, it's, I mean, it speaks well of you, but again, you seem very grounded, even even in your earlier discussions. And it's funny, like you, you mentioned your siblings a lot, and I know I read Bobby Orr's book one time, you know, Bobby Orr was one of five kids, right? So his mom asked one time, was asked one time, you know, how's your son doing? And, and his mom answered, well, which one? I have three. <laughs> you know, which was a good answer because, you know, yeah, yep. Bobby Orr's your son, but she said, I have five kids. Bobby's one of them. So was, yep. was your family dynamic much like that? Like you're, you're doing well and they're happy for you, but you're just, you're the third of four brothers kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll put it to you this way. I, I have my mom and dad, God rest their souls, had two sons. Yeah. And then 
they waited forever, a thousand years, and they had a third son. And when they had the third son, 18 months later, you're not, a, you're not the baby anymore. Yeah. Your kid brother's the baby. Huh. So I've often thought that, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, I didn't get enough attention. <laughs> <laughs> because the third never gets the attention. Yeah. It's especially if the sibling, the, the last two are, you know, approximately uh, closer in age. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know, you know, um, there, there's a great Khalil Gibran saying, and are you familiar with Khalil Gibran at all? I don't think I know that name. If you look it up, you will be a, become a fan of his writings and stuff. But basically the saying is this philosophy began when man ate the produce of the earth and suffered indigestion. Hmm. Interesting. So I, I have no idea why all this worked. I have no idea why anybody wants to talk to me about my life. Yeah. It's just a life that I've lived. And it's just, it's wonderful that, that we take the time to share these moments and maybe someone who's listening can apply something to their life, but you have to be the third of four in order to have the fire to want to stand out. Maybe. <laughs> well, maybe, but uh, well, it's, I think it just speaks the family of grounding. You know, it's funny because Lori, Lori Dean asked me when I, we were going to do this interview, she said, you have to ask him about the song who has the answers because she said when, when she was a young girl, maybe 12 or 13, that song came out and it really meant a lot to her because she was asking a lot of the same questions. And so she was just really curious about the story behind that song. And, uh, how it meant, what it meant to you personally, I guess, because it meant so much to her personally. Um, it was one of those songs that I wrote without, with, without um, an agenda. I, I was walking the streets of New York City and knowing that, um, that there, there were problems in you, if you travel through the boroughs, first of all, you have to know I love to walk, especially in New York City. Yeah. And everything that was going on, I really kind of somehow felt that um, where is God? Yeah. So, you know, I wrote this song without, without thinking about any of the dynamics, and I went in and produced the song, and, and I... Um, recently on International Earth Day, they had asked me for a song. So I sent them the song. And I think it started in someone in France flipping over it and then Sweden and people have rediscovered this song. And so I put the video together. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I should send that whole thing to you so, so Laurie can hear what the song is in the context of today's world. Yeah, I'd love, um, to, love to hear that, yeah. But, but it's those things that, come, that uh, come from you, but they don't belong to you. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, uh, as a result, it was, there's kind of renewed interest in the song. And to go from, you know, Sugar Sugar and Baby I Love You and How Do We Ever Get This Way and Shoot Em Up Baby and Rainbow Ride to... Who has the answer? Yeah, um, it's a pretty big leap for some people, but it wasn't for me because, you know, we shed our skin every day and we 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 become the lessons we've learned and the hopes that we have will never die. Well, no, I think and, that's right, and and we also many of us have a sense of faith or a sense of higher purpose. We're all just trying to figure out this crazy world, and our humanity is what's most important. I mean, yeah, it's nice to have a song, and it's nice to have fun songs that makes the world a better place. But your humanity, in the end, is what's most important, right? Absolutely, and so um, only because because there's there's truth in that humanity, because yeah. because you can't. You can't kid yourself all your life because there will come a time when um, you will not appreciate your journey. Yeah. And that's why today in, in our conversation, um, 
I'm, I'm reliving some things that I had not thought about. Hmm. And I'm, I probably never think about them. I just am existing at this moment in time here talking yeah. to you. That's all that's going on in my life. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's right. But I, I, I guess your history matters in the sense that um, a couple of professors that I've had have said the same thing in different ways, but that everything, every experience I've had in my life has brought me to the moment I'm at right now. And they all factor Correct. in, in some way. Yeah. And that experience was, was uh, you know, to me, was part of the building blocks of your next experience. Yes, Absolutely. And, and so, um, to, um, when, when I first started out, I had my arms wide, wide, wide open. And then eventually, by the time I was about to move to New York, those arms had kind of folded themselves and it hit my, hit my body and my face. Hmm. And it took a little while to extract it again. So we go through all those things and, and, Without judgment, without blaming anybody, it's just what life throws at you. And what do you do about it? Yeah. You know, you don't go and put your neighbor down. You don't go and burn their house down because you're not happy. Yeah. You just find out how you can find your way through the storm. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, and that's, that's a, a good word because you're the kind of person who went through all the things that you went through and you had the success, but you were able to stay grounded and, and still be humble about it and then come up with a philosophy of life that's going to serve you well beyond the music, just as a human being. And, and that, to me, is, is, is what I'm more interested in than, than maybe some successes or the music and stuff. That counts, but it's not, that's not life, right? Yeah, I, I think that, um, um, you know, uh, you are not your career, you are not those hits. You know, you, you, are the, you are the product of the creation of it. But, but the fact that millions and millions of people love it has nothing to do with your spirituality, with where you come from. Once you start believing that, that you've been put on earth as, as a gift, <laughs> I think... I think you're in trouble, but that's for my life. Someone else may find it, you know, extremely exhilarating to be, you know, with a small G God, you know, but I suppose, but when we look back, if you look at the evidence of it, there's a lot of people that got caught up and that's why I usually ask that question. Did you get caught up in the lifestyle? Cause most people probably did and, and had an inflated sense of themselves and, and it, it led them down a dark path. And, and we all know lots of examples of that. So being able to have some success and, and some enormous success in your case and still stay grounded is, is more rare than it should be. Well, um, I thank you for that. I, I think that, that, um, I think everyone is rare. It's just that they haven't, they haven't decided to find it within themselves because it's a contest between what they have and someone else has. But that's, that's, that's a false premise. Whenever you, whenever you build something on a false premise, its foundation will crumble. You may not realize it, but it's going to. And so, um, you know, without, without bringing too much thought into this, you have to grow into it. You know, I was lucky enough to kind of have been given that sense as a kid, the sense of adventure, the sense of, of doing the things that I want to do and, and be honest and pure in, in, in how you conduct your life. Yeah. Oh, good. No, I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that. So if I, can, if I may ask you one last question, I usually uh, ask this to, of my guests is uh, what's something about you that people wouldn't know? Do you have a hobby outside of music? Is there something you're interested in that you do that's not music related or something about you that we wouldn't know? I'm a great cook. Great cook. Oh, love, I'm a great cook. Very nice. <laughs> I love to go to the supermarket to pick up the stuff. I don't think I've, I've ever not thought about growing up in the tenements and all the lessons you learn in the alleyway. Yeah. When my kid brother and I used to 
collect cool bottles that we found in the garbage and get two cents per bottle so that we could share a banana split. I never forget that. So it's been a great ride. Yeah, no, good for you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and and for being so forthcoming and sharing the the things that you have. And I hope that I asked you some different questions than you normally get asked and just talk about life issues too. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, you know what? The music's the music, but the people behind the music and what excites them and what makes them uh, want to live their life, it's kind of a mystery sometimes, but you're living it. Well, yeah. I guess, yeah, and I think I've I've seen people who, who are enormously successful, but they're kind of missing the whole point because it's not about me, me, me and self-indulgence and, you know, a meaningful life is not going to be lived that way. So, yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, uh, well, good luck with all your adventures and all the things you have coming up. And, of course, the Christmas show is, is well known for the charity aspect of it and giving back and stuff. So people really appreciate you for that as well. Well, I thank you much, and, and um, uh, tell Oriel Center that song, and um, we, will, uh, we will find our path connected again somewhere, somehow. Yes, that sounds great. I'm sure she'll really appreciate that. And, uh, and it's funny, because you were memorialized in our band, because our, our keyboard player's name was Andy, and our singer's name was Kim. So we, we'd always hear this, Andy, <laughs> Andy Kim, and then we'd start singing Rock Me Gently as soon as we... <laughs> so, oh, my God. You were that memorialized. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you much. Have a All good right. life. Take care. Sounds good. Okay, take, take care. Many thanks to my guest, Andy Kim, for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his long and very successful music career. More information is available at andykimmusic.com. And he's also on Facebook with Andy Kim Music. And he also has a Twitter account if you want to follow that as well. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and uh, share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you would like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio at DustyDiscsRadio.com Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you are hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.